Okay, everybody, if you want to find a seat, we're going to go ahead and get started here. Uh, I want to just quick show of hands. Is anybody a C.S. Lewis fan read any of his stuff? Okay, oh, that's great. This will be more fun for you then. Um, there's this little known short story written by Lewis. He wrote it early in his career and then rewrote it later in life, and it wasn't even published until after um, his death. It's a story of this man named Robin who was born blind and then has this operation to restore his sight. It's this big miraculous thing. But after the operation, he's struggling because his entire life um, was lived in darkness. He was blind, and he had always heard about this thing called light. And he's frustrated because any time he asks people about the light, um, after he can see, they seem put off by his question. And they give these kind of evasive, indirect answers. And, and I want to just read a little bit of this story to you, actually uh, quite, quite a bit, more than I usually read of a story like this, um, to, to kind of get into what Lewis is saying. It was as if he thought, they thought he was mad. He said, well, look here, dear. I've been wanting to ask you ever since I got back from the nursing home. I expect it'll sound silly to you, but things must be different for a chap who's been blind all his life, mustn't they? It's all so new to me. As soon as I knew I had a chance of getting my sight, well, I looked forward. The last thing I thought before the operation was light, wondering what it would be like. Then all those days afterwards, waiting till they took the bandages off, wondering, waiting. But then, and here his voice shook a little, why don't I, I mean, where is the light? His three weeks of sight had not yet taught him to read the expressions of her face, but he knew by her voice the warm wave, wave of muddled, frightened affection that had swelled up in her as he said, or as she said, why don't we just go to bed, dear? We can talk about all this in the morning. Um, you, just, you know you're just tired now. No, he said, I've got to have this out. You've got to tell me. I want to know. Know what, Robin? Ask me anything you like, but there's nothing to worry about. Your sight is perfectly all right now. You're cured. Very well, then. Tell me this. Is there light in this room at present? Of course there is, Robin. Then where is it? It's all around us, she said. Well, can you see it? Yes, but really, Robin, dear. But then why can't I? But Robin, she said, you can. You can see me, can't you? And the mantelpiece and the table. And that, well, that's what drives me mad, he said. That's the sort of thing you all say. I want to see light. Are you the light? Is the mantelpiece light? Is light only a name for all these other things? Oh, I see, she said. You're asking about the light. Well, that's it there, hanging from the ceiling with the pink shade. Then why did you tell me the light was all around us? Darling, I mean, that's what gives the light. The light comes from there. Then where is the light itself? You see, you just won't say. Nobody will say. You tell me there's light here and light there, that this is the light and that is the light, and people get in one another's light, but you won't point it out. You won't show me the light itself. If none of you know what light is, just say so. If there's no such thing, if it was all just a fairy tale all along, say so. If the operation was a failure and I still can't see what other people see, tell me. I can take that. It's this secrecy that I can't stand. You're all like conspirators. Why the devil? Well, at this point, Anne began to cry and Robin apologized. He comforted her and they went to bed. 
When Anne took him out for his walk the next day, he was on his guard. He kept saying, oh, this is lovely, so beautiful, let me drink it in, and that satisfied her. And he knew enough to know now that none of the things he saw could possibly be light. They were, as Anne obviously expressed to him, only fields or cows or grass or the sun or trees or a quarry. Nothing could be attempted until he was able to go for walks on his own. He was almost certain that she knew no more about the light than he did. He was beginning to suspect that most of the unblind were in the same position. What one heard among them was probably near parrot-like repetition of a rumor concerning something which the very few, the great prophets and great poets, had really seen and known. Somewhere it must exist. Perhaps not in England, perhaps only in rare deposits of it existed. In that case, he would never see it. But if he did, ah yes, if he did, he would dive into its very heart, give all himself away to it, drink, 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 drink it up until he died drinking. And then the story goes on for a little bit. About six weeks go by, Robin um, finally gets to go for walks by himself. He goes on this path that she often takes him on that goes by this massive rock quarry where they mine these rocks because it's this beautiful view. And there was a thick fog that day hanging in the air and the sun was just beginning to burn the fog away. And so the fog, especially down in the quarry, was just lit up by the sunlight and it was glowing almost from, it looked like, the inside. And through the fog, he heard someone singing on the edge of the quarry and as he came close, he saw this artist, a painter, um, with an easel who was stabbing at the canvas with a brush and singing as he did and painting. And then we pick up the story. Robin blurted out, what are you doing? Before he had time to be self-conscious. Doing, said the stranger with a certain light-hearted savagery. Doing? I'm catching the light, if you must know. Good God, said Robin, so am I. Oh, you know too then, do you, said the man. Then almost vindictively, they're all fools, you know. How many of them come out to paint on a day like this? How many of them will ever see it, even though you show it to them? And yet, this is the only sort of day when you can see light, solid light, light you could drink in a cup or swim in. Look at it. He pointed into the quarry. The fog was at death grips with the sun, but not a stone on the quarry floor was yet visible. Do you see that, shouted the stranger. There's light for you if you like it. A second later, the expression on the painter's face changed. Here, he cried, are you mad? And the grab he made at Robin was too late. Already, big twist, he was alone on the path. So what happened is Robin has jumped into the light. He actually died. Cheery, right? <laughs> Thank you so much for telling us this story, Pastor Tim, to lighten our day, right? Okay, so here, here, there's actually a reason um, I'm, I'm telling this story. Um, we're talking about reverence, right, for these few weeks. Last week we talked about reverence for others. This week we're talking about reverence for God, and I think this story can help us navigate that. This, this man Robin in the story, he has just had an exper uh, experience with what is sometimes called, especially in philosophy or philosophical theology, what is sometimes called the sublime. Is anybody familiar with the term the sublime? Not the band sublime, but the term sublime. So this is, sublime is, 
an experience that doesn't fit with reality as we know it. It's like an encounter with something great, with greatness, that goes beyond calculations and imaginations as they current are. It's an encounter with something impossible that sort of wrecks our working theory of the world. Does that make sense? That's the sublime. And it, it can be lots of things. It, it, it's something that has this immensity to it. It's just bigger than what we can are used to imagining. It's, it's, um, we can't imitate something like that. It's, it's beyond comprehension. And so when we meet it, it kind of scrambles our current view of reality. And if we'll let it, um, which is a big if, the sublime sort of leaves us suddenly radically open to a new kind of future, a future that we can't control or define ourselves. The sublime um, can be lots of things. So it, it's often an encounter with deep beauty, um, like something in nature that just arrests you, or, or, or a great work of art, like a song or a painting that just sort of overwhelms you. Has that happened to you where you just, you just all of a sudden you're weeping and you don't know why? You don't have words or even a category for why it's hitting you so hard? Often it's an encounter with weakness or tenderness, like a mother with an infant child or a, a wildflower in the middle of nowhere. Sometimes it's something turbulent or dangerous or even destructive, like a storm, right? Or creeping up to the edge of the Grand Canyon or something like that. It's something that actually threatens to destroy us, but it also kind of thrills us. You know that feeling in a thunderstorm where you're like, this, this is not safe, but it's thrilling at the same time? That's the sublime. It's anything that overwhelms us and forces us to kind of see that we don't understand the world. Um, our working theory of reality is too small to contain this, this sublime experience. And in order to move forward, we're going to have to change and grow. And here in Lewis's story, this operation that gives this blind man his sight um, is the sublime. It has scrambled his worldview. And he's looking for help in dealing with these this new reality. And so he goes to these two people, his wife and then this, this painter. And they kind of give us the two extremes and it kind of a cautionary tale of what not to do. His wife, Anne, represents what you might could call the naturalist position. It's where like the universe is a, a closed system of cause and effect. There's no God, just a material universe. And for Anne, the light, by the way, light in this whole story symbolizes God, right? I'm, I'm sure you caught that already, but I should name it. It's light, uh, it stands in for the divine, the absolute. For Anne, the light, it's just in the world and it's just everywhere. It's this purely kind of given physical phenomenon and it's not even really worth contemplating or talking about it. So when, when Robin presses her about the light, she doesn't even really understand why he's asking the questions. And she dismisses it as silliness or madness. And then there's this painter, and he represents religious certitude or religious fundamentalism. He, he tells her only he, he's the only one who can see the light, right, and grasp its true nature. True nature. He, he tells Robin that He's capturing the light, that he can bottle it up. And those other fools, they just miss it. And, and so in the story, he kind of possesses or consumes the light through his painting. But in, in fact, Lewis is alluding to things like religious certitudes, like dogmatic fundamentalisms, even, even um, 
the, a way of manufacturing an experience with God, like a mountaintop experience. Think church camp, if you went to that ever when you were a kid. So, so when Robin shows up in just desperation and disarray and encounters this fanatic spouting certitudes and, and puffing himself up and, and selling something that he doesn't really possess, Robin goes for it and it ends up wrecking him. He dives headfirst in and this becomes, this leads to his destruction. And what I think this story illustrates here in these two characters are the, the two ditches that exist on either side of the path that we might call reverence for God, right? On one side, there's this kind of cynical distance that reduces God to a matter of physics or dismisses the question as just too complex and confusing and not worth our time. That's, that's the wife in this in the story. It's like, nobody can understand this. It's, nobody can know the answer. It's not even worth worrying about God. Or um, it's a strict materialism that says either, you know, God doesn't exist or else God is just identical with the physical universe. Either way, the cynic sort of stands at a distance from nagging questions about God and sort of is dismissive toward people who still think about God. Of course, the problem with this view is that life pushes us toward an awareness of God and toward questions of um, God and the meaning of life. We can try to maintain a cynical distance, but then what do we do with the sublime? What do we do when we run into it and it arrests us, right? We can stuff questions of God and meaning beneath the surface, but when we bump into the sublime, they bubble to the top and they push us toward God. They push us toward meaning. It's like the, the um, atheist, committed atheist, who has their first baby and holds them in their arms for the first time and is weeping and starts to pray. And it's like, I don't even believe in God. Why am I praying to God right now? That's, that's the problem with this cynical distance. Life pushes us toward the divine. And cynical distance cannot protect us from sublime encounters. So then we might try the other extreme, which I would call over-proximity. Here the mistake is trying to capture or contain or possess God in some way. This is, my example of this would be like the helicopter parent who tries to determine the life of their child. They're just always hanging over them, making every decision, controlling every behavior. Some people try to do this with God, often through doctrines and dogmas. And and so they kind of purport to have mastered the question of God, right? And anyone who differs from their answer is a fool or demonic or a heretic. It's this posture of certitude toward God that is really irreverent to the God who, you know, confounds those categories. And trying to do this, trying to contain God, is to try and determine God's existence ourselves. So, of course, God in, that, in those systems just ends up being a reflection of one's own worldview, often their psychosis, right? And the problem with this one is that if, um, if you've gone to the side of, um, over proximity, trying to determine God and having this, selling this certitude about God, then you've made an idol. Certitude is really just a form of idolatry. And what do you do when you've made an idol? You've contained God, and then the sublime happens to you. 
and, and you've cemented God in stone or in an idol. And, and, but now this sublime is beckoning you to change some aspect of your picture of God. What do you do? Um, Richard Rohr has this famous saying. He say, says it a lot. He says, um, God is most easily lost by being thought found. That's this problem. God is most easily lost when we're just sure we've, we've got God in a box. You can't put God in a box because the sublime happens and it just messes with our categories. And this is when the, the people who kind of have over proximity there start burning heretics and excommunicating people. And so reverence for God for the Christian has to somehow avoid these two extremes. Either treating God like a a predictable theology, like a stable possession, exhaustively understood. That's an over-proximity, puts us in charge of God. Or an indifference to the question of God. This takes pot shots at everybody who wants in on that conversation, that cynical distance. Neither of those can help us find a place of reverence for God. And what I think um, C.S. Lewis is trying to say in this really creative way is that there is this space between the light itself and all that the light illuminates. There's a space between those. And to be human is to live in that space here in the world, kind of confounded by the distance. Light isn't something we can see. Light is what makes seeing possible. God is like that. We can't see the light. We can only see things by the light. Because of the light, God is like this. Lewis is saying God is more like the light itself in this story than than either of the, the two ways that we kind of try to control God. God is this elusive thing that we can't nail down but which impacts every aspect of our being and our relationships and our experience of the world. At the same time, God is not just some natural phenomenon, right, that we can touch or see or measure. God is the source of all that we can touch or see or measure. And at the same time, God is not some religious dogma or or concept or belief. That's an idol, right? God is what actually remains when the sublime comes and confounds all those categories of ways we've tried to describe God. And they begin to falter and fall down. Like when, when, when the sublime hits us and concepts and beliefs that we were sure of, it just all of a sudden feel shaky. And, and we begin to suspect, this is what happens in the encounter with the divine, we begin to suspect that we're missing something about God and ourselves and the world around us. And here's the thing. Whenever we find ourselves in the world, um, uh, relating to self, to other, to just the, the physical world, working, playing, God is always out ahead of us, out in front of us, beyond anything that we can um, say or imagine as God. God is not confined to our systems of religion. 
God is not confined to our view of reality, but is actually constantly breaking through our reality, calling us to be born again into a new reality that Christ called the kingdom of God. And, and this, is, this is what I think. I think the place where this God happens to us, where God calls us forward as new creation, the New Testament calls it, I think it comes at the nexus of reverence for God and the sublime, where those things meet. When we encounter these moments of the sublime, the impossible, it's that wrecks our theory of the world and makes us think that I think there's more to this life than what I'm seeing. If we meet that with a sense of reverence for God, like this posture of humility toward God that, that knows how to stand in awe of something, you know, that things that go beyond our understanding, this radical openness to God um, in the midst of the, the sublime that, that makes us think the world is bigger than what we can imagine, then uh, we will come to change and grow as persons in such a radical way that Christians came to calling it being born again or becoming new creation. In John chapter 3, there's a story we heard earlier about this devout Jewish man named Nicodemus. He was, he was kind of a big deal. He's a leader in Israel, a member of the counselor or council. And Nicodemus has this encounter with the sublime. He was in Jerusalem during the Passover, and he saw Jesus confronting the temple structure and its leaders. He saw Jesus performing miracles. Only in, in um, the book of John, they don't call them miracles. They call them signs. It's different than the other Gospels in that sense. They're, they're signs because they're signaling something, mostly that their religious system, their theologies and practices are too small to contain God, what God is doing. They're too fragile to withstand a genuine encounter with the divine, the, the kind they were having everywhere that Jesus went. And, and this encounter with the sublime began to scramble Nicodemus's working theory of reality. And so he goes to seek Jesus out under cover of darkness, which fits with our story from Lewis. Darkness in the Gospel of John um, is a, it's symbolic. It symbolizes separation from God, right? So this is John's whole deal about the light is coming to the darkness. Children of the earth love the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome the light, right? So this, this is behind all of this. Nicodemus here is in the dark, physically and spiritually. And when he finds Jesus, he calls him rabbi, which is a term of reverence. Rabbi means teacher. He basically is saying, I'm, I'm here because I think I need you to become my teacher in this moment. He says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. There are seven signs in the Gospel uh, of John. He turns water to wine, cleanses the temple, heals the Roman official's son, um, heals a lame man, feeds a multitude, heals a blind man, and raises Lazarus from the dead. And all these are pointing to what life is like within the kingdom of God. And they're all addressing a situation where something has died or has been broken or has been lost. And there's no way to fix it. There's no remedy. You know, when the wine runs out in Cana or the, there's no food in Galilee for the crowd, there's not like a, a Kroger's around the corner where you can just go get stuff. You're, it's just going to, it's a settled reality. 
right? There's nothing you can do. If the temple is corrupted, they have no way to fix that. Blind is blind. Lame is lame. There's, Lazarus is dead. There's no coming back from these things. And so in each case, some precious and meaningful part of life has been scrambled, lost, or foiled. And each time Jesus moves into that and performs one of these miracles or signs that leave the people involved in this, not just the one it happens to, but everybody watching it, with this encounter with the sublime, the incredible. And they're amazed, and they think it's wonderful, but it is disturbing to them. It is scary. Think of the times when Jesus would do this, and people would say, we need you to leave now. Like, leave our town. Leave us alone. It's scary. It's uncanny. It's unnerving. And it forces them to start to rethink their reality. And Nick Devens, man, he's a pretty well-educated guy. He's seen a lot of things. And he, he has no category for what he's seen Jesus do. His wisdom, his knowledge, his experience, he cannot account for these signs. There's just this immensity to what is happening. They're, and they're beyond imitation. Nobody else can do this. And they're beyond explanation. He, he can't figure out what's happening. They're, they're thrilling and like beautiful and enticing, but they are spooky and unnerving at the same time. And he can't make sense of them. He doesn't have any category that helps him with what he's seen, except for one thing. And, and it turns out to be sort of the only thing that he needs in this situation, Nicodemus has a sense of reverence for what he does not understand. He has a sense of reverence for this rupture in his own reality, this reverence for God in that moment. And, and this reverence turns out, um, at the point of the encounter with the sublime, with that which does not compute, it's happening in Jesus. This reverence leads him to a whole new reality. Jesus says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. The word, the Greek word um, for again there is anothen. It has two meanings. It means again or anew and also from above. And it's not like it can mean one or the other. It's both at the same time. To be born again means to be born anew from above. And this, this rupture in Nicodemus's Reality is coming from God, from above here. And it's asking him to, to greet um, this rupture as a, kind of a new birth. Nicodemus, he's like, say what? Um, he does not get the metaphor. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. And so Jesus tries to help him along. He says, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God Unless they are born of water in the spirit, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. Now, when we hear the phrase born of water, we, uh, as Christians, we think baptism. Nicodemus, there's no Christianity yet. Nicodemus would have thought of natural childbirth. To be born of the waters is, it refers to amniotic fluid. This is how flesh gives birth to flesh, Jesus says. It, um, it's through the waters. Uh, if you remember Genesis the creation narrative, all of creation is born through the waters of chaos, right? But Jesus says there's a whole nother um, category of being that comes into being, this thing, new things coming into being that are not born of water. They're born of the Spirit. 
They, the born of water mentality, can't, it can't handle what's coming to life here. They're born from above, from God, not from anything that you are used to explaining or categorizing. And so Jesus says, you know, um, you should not be surprised at my saying you should be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but cannot tell where it comes from and, or where it is going. So it is, he says, with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And this is what I think. I think this is the point of contact between Nicodemus's life and all of our lives. Jesus says, like, he's kind of going, I know that you already get this on some level, Nicodemus. Even though on, on the surface, it doesn't seem to make sense. But that's because it's a thought you don't want to think you like God to be categorized in your neat categories where you can be right and righteous and always good and always perfect and don't need to grow. But I'm telling you, that's, that's not going to help you here. On the surface, it doesn't make sense. But you get this on some level or you wouldn't be here in the dark talking to me. Your working theory of how the, the world works, it's been ruptured by these miracles, by my ministry. I see that and I know it's tough. But you already know Yahweh doesn't follow the rules set down by men. The wind blows where it blows, he says. You've seen the signs. You've been thrilled and terrified at the same time. But I see you here in the dark holding this place of reverence for God in the midst of your just absolute crisis of faith. And he says, if, if you have courage to kind of surrender your old system to God, don't pivot to the cynical distance and make fun of it. Don't pivot to over-proximity and try to control and determine it. But instead, start faithing forward. Become open to what is blowing in the Spirit's new wind, and you'll come alive with this new reality that he calls in this passage the kingdom of God. And I think we all know this feeling. This sense that, you know, the way that we've been thinking about life and, and God and our life and the kingdom is too small and limited. We all have these encounters with the sublime, with some kind of greatness that's overwhelming, or with the beautiful or the impossible, this experience that just doesn't fit with reality as we know it. And we could, you know, soldier on and ignore it, we could keep telling ourselves, you know, we're going we're to keep the faith. We won't expose our system to, to God. But the sublime, is, it's so compelling. It's like we can't help ourselves. We have this sense that there's something beyond our view of God in the world. Some encroaching truth or reality or way of being that is calling to us. And, and what the story of Nicodemus here promises is that if we'll meet the sublime with this sense of reverence for God, the same place, a radical openness to God's future, breaking into the world, then, then we can be born again from above, born into this new reality of the kingdom of God. And it's weird. It's, it's a bizarre experience. Because what the, um, what the sublime, the sublime is not God. It's, it's created stuff. It happens in the world that God has made. It's not synonymous with God. 
But what the sublime actually does is not give us a direct encounter with God, like some, you know, mountaintop religious experience. It's, it's not what happened to Nicodemus here. I mean, think of um, Moses in Sinai and Yahweh saying, you, nobody can see God and live, man. <laughs> That's not how this works. So the sublime doesn't give us a direct encounter with God per se. The sublime, what it actually does, it helps us see that our current view of God and self and other in the world just isn't enough. We're going to have to learn again to stretch every category that we try to place God in. We're going to have to let ourselves change and grow and be born again, allowing God to come to us on God's own terms, not on our terms, to meet what, what Paul Tillich called the God beyond God, the God who is beyond all the things that we have learned to say about God in order to keep God in a safe place that we can control. The God beyond God. I don't know how often, you guys, that it's weekly at least, if not more, I sit with people from our congregation and from around the city, friends, and just people who come to me through writing and stuff. And you guys are having these encounters with the sublime in your life. And they've destabilized your beliefs, and you sort of come to this place where you're like, I don't know what I think anymore. All you know is that your old system doesn't work, the one you were handed. And so you begin deconstructing your old system and trying to put a new one together. And the heartbreaking thing in the midst of it is, I see you holding a place of reverence for God. But it's like you think you've done something wrong in the midst of it. Or you've lost something that you need. But you haven't. You might have lost something, but it's not something you need. Um, And this is just how it goes. We start with our working theory of the world, of reality, of who God is, who we are, how to relate to God and others in the world. And the sublime comes and wrecks it. That's how it works. And, and, and like the, the guy, Robin, in, in C.S. Lewis's story, it, it causes this, it's uncanny, it's unnerving, it's disturbing to us. And it feels like we're doing something wrong. And then you got people like Anne who tempt us to just you know, get over it, stop thinking about it, just ignore the religious stuff. And then you got the religious fundamentalists who are like, we have the truth, we have, we have bottled the light, and if you don't do this, you're, you know, somehow heterodox. They try to capture God in their tidy theology or their guaranteed religious experience. Jesus has none of this. I mean, those are the people who kill him. And what he says is that that point at which you feel like you're losing it, losing your faith, that's the point. He's trying to get us to that place. And it feels like he'd done something wrong or like none of it was ever real. And, and, and this story of Nicodemus shows us all you need at that moment is just a little bit of reverence for God. You just bring it all like, like Nicodemus. You bring it to Jesus. And you say, I think I need you to be my rabbi here. I need you to teach me how to keep faithing forward in my life under the direction of the Spirit's new wind. And, and what you'll find is there's always more life on the other side. You're not losing your mind. This is how it goes. This is what discipleship and maturity looks like. And if you can hold a place of reverence at that point of rupture, then 
in the encounter with the sublime, you'll come alive again. You'll be born again to this God who is always beyond, always more than we think, always better than we think. God is always out there beyond us, calling us toward him, calling us toward his kingdom, into God's future. All we have to do is be open to the sublime and to have in it this place of reverence. Yeah? Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for this story and this image that has become just so important for us as Christians to be born again. And I pray that we would have faith in those moments and that we would approach those confusing times in life with a sense of reverence for you. That we would lean into this wind that blows and we don't know where it's going, but we trust that it will take us to you. I pray just especially for folks who are part of Redemption here today who feel like they're in the thick of it life just does not make sense right now in the world it doesn't compute and I pray just for a special grace from you God just a sense of your presence in the midst of that moment and pray that you would help us hold a place of reverence for you, for our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you to stand now, and we're going to receive communion. Um, we invite anybody who calls on the name of Christ to join us at the table. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and Um, gave thanks for it and broke it and passed it out to his followers and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, same thing, blessed it, passed it around. They all drank from it. He said, this blood is the new covenant in my blood, a new deal between you and God. And then he said, whenever you gather, eat this bread, drink this cup in remembrance of me and remember this new deal. He was saying, receive me, my body, my blood, my life into your life. Get made out of the stuff I'm made out of and then go out into the world and be salt and light. That's the movement. And that's why we, um, that's why we receive communion every week. We're trying to just symbolically enact that this is, this is what we're doing when we come to worship. So I would invite you to pray with me as we, we bless the bread and the cup. Lord, we give you thanks for this meal, the bread and the cup, May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?